I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, May 14th, 2023, and happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. I'm your host, Andy McCabe. Hey, Andy. I'm Allison Gill. And it was a relatively quiet week in the special counsel investigations. We had no big drama, no subpoenas that we heard about, no witness testimony we heard, about uh, no rulings about executive privilege or no piercing attorney-client privilege with the crime fraud exception (laughs) this week. But like good television writing, uh, a lot happened this week to move the narrative, right? Uh, And perhaps the lack of subpoenas and testimony this week is the story, because I think it could be indicative of the special counsel finishing up the overt investigatory steps and maybe moving toward charging decisions, like internal deliberations. I was hoping you could shed a little light on if that's sort of how it worked inside the uh, crossfire hurricane or, you know, what you like to call the Russia investigation. That's, still <laughs> that's all I was okay. allowed to call it in my book. Yeah, I, I think that that is it's certainly a possibility. You know, at some point, the spigot of subpoenas is going to turn off, or at least it'll get turned back to an absolute trickle. You could always see a stray subpoena going out here or there, you know, on the verge of an indictment or even on the verge of trial, for that matter, if there's just a record that's out there that you need to pick up or or something like that. But the major subpoena work pretty much is done before you you finish putting the case in front of the grand jury uh, and you send them out to to take a vote. So that could be what we're looking at here. Uh, and it would make sense that they're kind of drifting into that uh, period of actually making some hard decisions about who or when or what to indict. Um, or, of course, it could mean that Jack Smith is is gearing up for a, a new round of subpoenas. There's still a couple of, of uh, really juicy potential subpoena targets out there. You know, we still have not heard anything about the elusive Mark Meadows uh, the Mark Meadows is a rare bird, one that you rarely <laughs> see. You know, uh, Here he in is your, in his natural habitat. That's right. With his face in his palm. Yeah. The unnatural habitat of the grand jury is where we'd prefer to see him. But in any case, we haven't heard a peep about any testimony or, or cooperation from Team Meadows. Um, but again, you know, I'm giving you a classic kind of attorney spiel here, taking both sides of every issue. Uh, but here, unfortunately, it's true. A lot of times you don't hear about things and they're actually going on uh, kind of behind the scenes. George Santos indictment, great example of that. We didn't know really that that was coming until it kind of got dropped on our heads this week. Uh, so another sign, I think, that the public corruption uh, unit, the the uh, section we refer to as PIN, uh, is pretty leak-proof. Um, but like you said, Allison, there, there are things that went on behind the scenes and out in the open uh, on a CNN town hall this week that really did move the investigative narrative forward. Right, like those developmental episodes, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. And, and today, today we're going to talk about cases making their way through the courts that interpret a statute that Judge Carter in California found Trump and John Eastman violated. 
you know, more likely than not. The notorious Title 18 U.S. Code, Section 1512C2. Your favorite. Uh, Your fave statute. (laughs) I've been on this for a while. Proud to report, I recognized the language of that statute during the very first January 6th hearing back in late 2021. This is well before the summer blockbuster Mm -hmm. hearings, right, of 2022. That's right. I tweeted... Uh, I'm sure you've noticed by now the deliberate legalese used by Liz Cheney repeatedly during recent hearings, quote, whether Trump by action or inaction corruptly sought to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding. And this is no accident, I said. Liz Cheney's refrain is nearly word for word, 18 U.S. Code, Section 1512 C2. Whoever corruptly obstructs, influences or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so. That's a very important thing Mm -hmm. there. I find it interesting, I continued, that a member of Congress who can't bring criminal charges is using prosecutorial language. Now, at the time, uh, Rachel Maddow erroneously said Cheney was citing 18 U.S. Code 1505, which is obstructing Congress, which is close, but not quite. Uh, That only carries a five-year max sentence, where 1512C2 carries a 20-year max sentence. So it's a different statute, and it's got much, you know, broader consequences. Yes. And I mean, props to you. Not often people can fact check Maddow and and come out on the right side of that. So well done. And, you know, we know that since that time, since the initiation of those hearings, over 300 January 6 rioters have been charged with 1512C2, including now, of course, Oath Keepers uh, and the Proud Boys. 1512C2 is included in the January 6th committee's criminal referral to DOJ for Trump. So my guess is that's why she quoted the language that you uh, picked up on very early on. She is with that trying to get the attention of prosecutors and people at DOJ who might be watching that uh, that early hearing and think, whoa, they've got something you know right in our wheelhouse here. That's probably the reaction she was hoping for. Yeah, and the timeline too is she cited that um, statute. And then we got the Judge Carter Eastman emails crime fraud exception case with the January 6th committee the following year, yep. where the judge determined that, you know, in order to pierce attorney client privilege with the crime fraud exception to hand over these Eastman emails to the 1 6 committee, uh, that beyond uh, a, 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 what's more likely than not, right, a preponderance of the evidence, uh, f- you know, 50.1%. That's right. That, that Trump and Eastman conspired. Uh, to obstruct, uh, well, to defraud the United States, but also obstruct an official proceeding, not just Congress, but an official proceeding, which makes this a very damning statute to run afoul of. That's absolutely right. And that's why that, you know, that uh, particular ruling really grabbed uh, everyone's attention. Obviously remarkable to pierce the attorney-client privilege, although seems pretty routine in this investigations because I have pretty it a couple times now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, to, to say that there's... In the early investigative phase, uh, to, to have a judge weigh in on a preponderance of evidence indicating that a crime took place, that, I mean, that's a, that's a good day for a prosecution team because, you, you know, you're basically halfway there. You're on your way to an indictment, no yeah. doubt. So she brings up that language in late 2021, and then 2022, we get that ruling from Judge Carter on crime fraud exception for 1512C2. And then the January 6th committee, uh, which Liz Cheney must have just been like dancing and like doing a little jig in her hotel room, wherever she was watching, (laughs) you know, watching, watching that uh, ruling come out because, you know, then they made that criminal referral. And so it's been quite, quite a straight line on this particular um, statute. And it's been challenged now several times by 
uh, various on various grounds by rioters who've been you know charged. They've either filed motions to dismiss the charges against them or uh, say that the statute doesn't apply or it's constitutionally ambiguous. I mean, there's all sorts of different grounds that they've been trying to dismiss these 1512c2 charges. And last month, Andy, the uh, the appeals court uh, in D.C. addressed part of the issue by overturning one judge, Judge Nichols, because Judge Nichols ruled that the statute wasn't applicable because of the word otherwise connecting C1 and C2 in, in, in Section 1512. And he was the only one, like 16 or 17 other federal judges saw it differently. He was the only one. And you and I talked about the importance of DOJ wrapping up that little one decision. Because as we talked about Jack Smith previously going after uh, McDonnell, was that his name? The, yep. Governor Bob uh, McDonnell. Yep. Governor Bob McDonnell, his conviction was overturned because the Supreme Court decided that the statute was applied ambiguously. The wording of the statute was too ambiguous to apply to that specific crime. And therefore, you know, the conviction was overturned. And so we now have DOJ wanting to go in and button up this Nichols ruling to ensure that everybody up and down the courts from, you know, from the district court to the SCOTUS, if, if it goes that far, understands that this is not an ambiguous statute. And we've got a couple of outstanding cases out there right now working their way through the courts to determine the definitions within 1512 C2. Yeah, that's right. So if Nichols ruling had been able to stand, you would you would literally have put the convictions of hundreds of January 6 defendants in jeopardy. Even people who had pled guilty to the statute would likely have come in and filed appeals after the fact. Um, and that just comes from that legal kind of uh, um, Nichols interpretation that the entire statute basically applied only to things like records, you know, people who destroyed records in the course of an investigation and things like that. Uh, and it's pretty clear from just a basic reading of the statute that that's not what they intended for uh, Part C two, uh, so fortunately we got uh, we got a good ruling on on that out of the D.C. Circuit. Now we're still kind of left. The one dangling issue here is the proper definition or the interpretation of what corruptly means in the statute. Um, and so where are we with that one, Allison? I guess we're we're hoping for uh, the court and Robert Robertson to give us some uh, guidance on that one. Yeah, so the one that uh, oh, you know, overruled um, the Nichols opinion and and you know throwing out some charges was a, a case called Fisher, and as you said, the the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the Department of Justice. There, they had one dissenting opinion, and then a lot of other January sixth rioters filed motions for dismissal based on that dissenting opinion, which makes no sense. But those were also thrown out. Um, and now this one about the definition of corruptly, because, you know, the Nichols one was the word otherwise. Now, this is the word corruptly. And this week, the appeals court heard arguments in that Robertson case. That's the one that uh, is talking about the definition of corruptly that you mentioned. And Kyle Cheney at Politico has written that two members of that three judge panel on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals hinted strongly Thursday. This is just last Thursday that they largely agree with the Department of Justice and the prosecutor's interpretation of the Enron-era obstruction law, referring to Title 18 U.S. Code 1512 right. C2. And Randall Eliason uh, 
has written now that the bottom line from Fisher, that's the otherwise case, is that a D.C. Circuit panel has definitively rejected the argument that 1512C is limited to acts that impair the integrity or availability of particular items of evidence, which is what you were talking about. Now, the proper definition of corruptly, uh, according to Eliason, remains an open issue and hopefully will be resolved in this Robertson case, the one that had the hearing on Thursday, the one that sounds like the appeals court is going to come down on the side of the Department of Justice. Correct. He goes He goes on to say, even if the court were to adopt the narrower obtain a benefit definition of corruptly uh, proposed by Robertson, that won't have much of an impact on future prosecutions. He says, as both judges Walker and Pan, those are two uh, of the three judges in the Fisher case, noted, uh, this standard likely could be satisfied by evidence that the rioters sought to obtain an improper benefit for Trump. So even the narrower view of the definition of corruptly would still include these January 6th rioters uh, because it would benefit them or someone else, that someone else being Donald Trump, because overturning the election keeps him in power. And the presidency is obviously uh, something of value. Just a bit, just a little bit of value. <laughs> just, just enough Keeps value. Keeps out of jail. That, that's right. Enough value that he's still lying about it uh, two years later. So, okay, yeah. So, it, it, interesting. I think also to note that the standard also would not prevent Special Counsel Jack Smith from charging Trump and others who did not directly participate in the riot. Um, that And that's a kind of an interesting um, aspect of what we saw in the conviction of the Proud Boys this week, which I know we're going to talk about later in the show. But essentially, you know, you don't have to be, um, you don't have to be a participant in that corrupt activity, that illegal activity to actually be a, a found guilty as a co-conspirator. Right. Yeah. And that's really big. And we're, we will talk about that um you know, a little bit later in the show when we hit the Proud Boys um, and to talk about the Proud Boys story. But, you know, Randall Eliason goes on to say the charge would be that through various corrupt means, meaning like fake electors, pressuring state officials like Pence, corrupting the Department of Justice, inciting the riot um, through those, you know, the corrupt that all is corrupt. Trump and others knowingly used unlawful methods to obstruct the vote certification and obtain an improper benefit for Trump. So I know there's a lot of sort of swirling opinions out there about how the review of this statute, 1512 C2, could upend hundreds of, you know, convictions and make it impossible to to go after Trump for 1512 C2 or, you know, anybody in that conspiracy, Eastman, Clark, um, you know, Meadows, anybody who was part of the Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. I mean, there's there's a num you know a, a large number of people who could be considered co-conspirators in corruptly trying to block the certification of the 2020 election. Uh, but as Randall Eliason points out, as I think we're going to find out from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in both Robertson as in Robertson as we found out in Fisher, the statute will remain as it is. I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to make a decision. I don't think they're going to want to hear this one because I don't think they want to put parameters on what corruptly means because that will have major uh, major ripple effect going through. I you know, I think they'll just leave it the way that it is. And the way that SCOTUS leaves things the way that it is is they just don't make it, you know, they don't hear the case. And so I think that'll 
leave us where we are. Um, and because, you know, like you and I said last week, Jack Smith would have had to prove corrupt intent regardless of any of these decisions. Correct. Correct. And, you know, your point is well taken, and particularly in light of the reference to the McDonald case, uh, the Supreme Court ruling that basically eviscerated uh, and reversed Donald's conviction completely cut the legs out from under the public corruption program in DOJ and the FBI. It made the investigation and the proof of corrupt deals among public officials infinitely harder because it essentially created this hard line of um, of having to prove an explicit quid pro quo. You had to have um, instead of the instead of the way these deals are normally done with suggestions and favors and the conveying of of gifts that might not have been explicitly requested but were ultimately accepted in the post McDonald era, uh, you really have to have explicit proof of, hey, you give me this and I'll do that for you, uh, which we all know is is a very tough thing uh, to include in your investigation. So I agree with you. I think unless it's absolutely kind of a screaming hair on fire issue, uh, it would be greatly disadvantageous for the Supreme Court to walk in uh, to kind of wade into this corruptly uh, interpreting the corrupt intent uh, element of the statute. Yeah, they tend to like to leave it to the courts, yep. uh, the lower courts. Uh, and, you know, hey, bring the charge, see what happens. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of uh, the way that they they uh, tend to view that. But I think buttoning up the Nichols thing, and, and it would button up, the, if SCOTUS refused to hear it and not make a ruling on it, that would button up the nickel. It would button up Fisher, it would button up Robertson, it would button up uh, everything that you would need to be able to bring this um unambiguously bring this charge against the former president, provided the evidence is there. You know, we're this we're we're kind of working from the baseline idea that the evidence is there. And I and I do think that it is, because I don't believe Judge Carter, and I understand that the standard is more likely than not, but to pierce the crime fraud exception for an attorney working with a former president, I think you might go a little bit further in your head than preponderance of the evidence. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that's yeah. that's the basement uh, of that standard. And I, I don't think that Judge Carter would have made that ruling uh, without being a little closer to beyond a reasonable doubt, <laughs> even though it's not required. Yeah. I mean, like I was going to say in a normal situation, though there's no normal situations where an attorney-client privilege is pierced. So in the rare occasions that it comes up, it's always treated very seriously. Like on a close call, the judge is going to err on the side of caution and say, and leave the privilege in place. Um, so you can only imagine the heightened scrutiny that these fact patterns received, knowing that... Uh, the, the attorney-client privilege that we're talking about here is between a former president and his criminal defense attorney. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. There had to be some pretty convincing evidence for both for all these judges to come out so consistently on those uh, motions. Yeah, and it reminds me of something else you and I've talked about before, which is the you only need probable cause to issue an indictment, but a prosecutor isn't going to bring charges per the federal criminal rules of, of procedure if unless they can obtain a conviction, which has to be done beyond a reasonable doubt and then maintain it on appeal, which is even a little bit beyond that. So it's I understand that there are the standards and that it's 50.1 percent for Carter to make that uh, assertion. But 
you that's the basement is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's the no, I, I agree with you. There's there's the prosecutors need a uh, a confidence level, a margin of confidence before they're going to go forward on any of these things, even in, in a normal day, on a normal case. And, and this is pretty far from a normal case. So, <laughs> yeah, I keep saying, oh, well, how long did the last coup investigation take? Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. oh, there wasn't one. OK, then maybe we shouldn't start talking about how long this one should take. Exactly. Um all right. Uh, very, very interesting stuff. We're going to keep an eye on these 1512 C2 proceedings. I think everything is going to be fine. Uh, and, but, I, you know, but like I said in the beginning there, Andy, the, the silence this week is the news to me. I think he's done with his most of his subpoenaing and most of his testimony. We didn't see the other four of the Ocha Nostra, uh, which includes Meadows, but that doesn't mean they didn't sneak in and sneak out and we didn't see them or that they, you know, that they aren't meeting uh, with the Department of Justice at a different location instead of in front of the grand jury. I don't know. But or, you know, Meadows could be a target. They might not be trying to bring him in at all. But that seems odd. We don't know. It's just we don't know what we don't know. There you and, go. Um, there you go. Part of it's a mystery. <laughs> nope. That's what makes it so uh, fascinating. <laughs> and, you know, even even the reporters literally holding a vigil daily out in front of that courthouse get surprised by people who come in and out or they get surprised they find out somebody was in there and they didn't see him. So uh, I walked by the other day. I was like, anybody interesting going in and out? He's like, no, (laughs) not today. We're watching. You know, I should put on a suit and just go walk in there. It was set off (laughs) a firestorm (laughs) of people talking about, oh my God, what's he doing here? Would you? (laughs) No, I definitely won't. Damn it, man. Why do you give me the... Why do you... Spit these awesome ideas and then just rip them right out from under us. Because the, the speculation do. would probably start with, oh, my God, it has something to do with the special counsel investigation. And then it would quickly drift to, oh, all right, they finally got this guy. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Just go in and do you have any friends that work there? Just go say hi to a friend. And- yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. I'm staying out, staying out, staying <sighs> out, of, the, out of the firing uh, zone over there. Man, this is when I wish I had some sort of clout like that. <laughs> 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 where I could just do that because that would be fun. That's my idea of fun. Um, all right. Well, uh, everybody, I will keep trying to persuade Andy to do this, but I don't think we're going to get very far. We do have a lot more news to get to, though, uh, especially um, on some convictions of seditious conspiracy and some stuff that happened at a town hall. But we have to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. 
and a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. So we had um, an historic conviction uh, last week as the Proud Boys were found guilty of seditious conspiracy. There were five Proud Boys on trial. Four of them were found guilty. One of them was found not guilty. That's Dominic Pozzola. We'll get to him in a minute. Put a pin in that uh, because it's important that, uh, that there's some important things to consider when you're found not guilty of conspiracies. Uh, and we found that out from the Oath Keepers sentencing recommendations for seditious conspiracy that came out. That, And I'm assuming all of the same principles will be applied Yes. To the Proud Boys and anybody else in the future that, that that goes down for seditious conspiracy. And one of the more interesting things here, and like I said, we'll get to Pozzola in a second, but is the Enrique Tario conviction. He was found guilty of seditious conspiracy. Uh, and before Enrique Tario, the person furthest away from the riot that was found guilty of seditious conspiracy was Stuart Rhodes. And he was at the Capitol that day, but he did not go inside. And there was a lot of stories about, wow, you can be that you, you didn't even have to go inside the Capitol that day to be uh, convicted of seditious conspiracy. Well, now we have Enrique Tario, who, who not only was not at the Capitol, not only did not go inside the Capitol, he wasn't even in D.C. that day. That's he right. was in Baltimore in a hotel, uh, and he was found guilty of seditious conspiracy. So let's talk a little bit about how he could be guilty of seditious conspiracy, but somebody like Dominic Pozzola, who was there at the front with a stolen riot shield breaking the window, could be found not guilty of seditious conspiracy. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to think about here. I think it's always good to go back and remind ourselves, like, what is a conspiracy? What, what puts you in the middle of a conspiracy? And a conspiracy is essentially two elements. It's an agreement and an act in furtherance. So you have to have some sort of agreement between two or more people um, to to commit a, a you know to commit a particular crime. In this case, uh, sedition, and then you have to take in the, some of the members of that conspiracy have to take at least one act in furtherance of the conspiracy. So you don't have to participate in every act that takes place in the execution of that conspiracy. You just have to have participated in the agreement and then committed one act yourself. And I think that's what you're seeing here uh, in the form of Enrique Tarrio. Another message that um, I think we all got from the conviction in the Oath Keepers trial 
is that the, the DOJ focused on, and it seems like the juries really keyed into this idea that seditious conspiracy is really for the organizers, right? It's not, you know, we have a tendency, we look at those videos, we see all the horrible things that these rioters did in their assault on the Capitol and assaulting police officers and breaking through barricades and things like that. And that's all serious, um, felonious conduct. Uh, but what seditious conspiracy is designed for is to go after the people who really had the plan and communicated the plan and executed the plan to essentially uh, uh, destroy, to, to as, the, as the statute itself says, to conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or to prevent by force, prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law. So, this is that's you're going after the Enrique Tarios of the group when you put that charge on the table. Yeah, and from what I understand, the jury felt that Dominic Pizzola didn't participate as earnestly in the planning and the preparation and the quick reaction force and the weapon stash across the Potomac and and therefore he was found not guilty of the seditious conspiracy. He was found guilty of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding That's and right. obstructing an official proceeding. That's and right. And serious charges that that could, that will likely bring him an extended sentence, but what the the you know, I think your interpretation of that is right. I think what the jury saw was that Pozzola wasn't really involved in the planning and execution of the overall effort to essentially overthrow the government. Um, What's that last element of of seditious conspiracy? It was put down by force, the government by levying war. What was the final uh, thing? Because I think it's the final thing that that uh, is most applicable. Yeah. So it says about halfway through the statute, it is, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof. So those two, you know, kind of narrows the scope a little bit. You don't have to actually have planned and tried to completely overthrow the government. You could have uh, simply conspired to hinder or delay the execution of any law. You can certainly see that applying here in the effort to uh, hinder or delay the certification of the election. And then the second part of that, uh, or by force to seize or take, take or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof, that's, that could be interpreted in the, um, in essentially the taking over of the Capitol and, uh, the Capitol building. Yeah. So here's my take, because I think the big question on everybody's minds is if Dominic Pozzola was found not guilty of seditious conspiracy, because he didn't participate as heavily in the planning and preparation for the attack on the Capitol, could Donald Trump, uh, be, found not guilty if charged uh, with seditious conspiracy. Because while Pozzola didn't participate as earnestly in the violent attack on the Capitol, he certainly had nothing to do with the pressure campaign on Pence, with the fraudulent elector scheme, uh, with anything else, with any uh, other behavior that uh, was intended to impede or delay the execution of any law of the United States, for example, the 12th Amendment or the Electoral Count Act, the counting of the, certifi the certification of the election. However, comma, 
Donald Trump, while he may, there may, probably not, but there, let's say there's not proof that he participated in the planning and the execution of the violent attack on the Capitol. Everybody's sort of mm-hmm. waiting for that yep. connection. While he may not have done that, and he might not be found guilty on seditious conspiracy for participating earnestly in the violent attack on the Capitol, he most certainly spent a lot of time planning, preparing, and scheming to block the certification of electors, to pressure Pence to throw out electors, to organize fraudulent electors and have those uh, false certificates sent to the National Archives and Congress, um, to potentially oust the attorney general and put in his own attorney general who would announce investigations uh, into, um, you know, potential or, you know, election fraud that didn't exist in order to delay the Electoral Count Act. So while he might not be guilty of seditious conspiracy with the violent attack on the Capitol, I could see him being charged with seditious conspiracy with regard to preventing or impeding the execution of the law of the United States uh, because he was very involved in those kinds of things. Does that make sense? So, I mean, yeah, it it makes sense. However, um, (laughs) you you have the problem with that theory. And I I think you're right in terms of focusing on the second half of the statute. Clearly, he wanted to hinder or delay the execution of the law, the certification of the election. There's no doubt about that. The problem for charging under uh, seditious conspiracy is the force element. Every clause in this statute requires force, by force. So you had to, and so for this piece, you have to uh, conspire to, by force, prevent or hinder or delay the execution. Now, in the Trump situation, if you could make the magical connection between the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers and Donald Trump, people have theorized that that was through Roger Stone or Mike Flynn or any of these other people, then that would that would get you closer to that. But that connection, to my understanding, has not been made yet. It certainly hasn't been made publicly. Could you make the argument that Trump conspired by force to hinder or delay by summoning the mob, knowing they were, uh, and then on the morning of, knowing they were armed, which we learned from the January 6th uh, committee hearings, he knew that they were armed before he got up on the stage. He then gets up on the stage and tells them all to go to the Capitol. Could you make that argument? You could, but you're really opening yourself up to a lot of potentially effective defenses on his part. So could you go under that theory? Yes, but with the evidence that we're aware of right now, you'd have some pretty high hurdles to get over in terms of proving the force element. In the mm-hmm. Oath Keepers case, it was easy because everything the Oath Keepers did also included staging all these weapons in Virginia that they were going to rush to their side uh, when, the, when the shooting broke out. So you had that, you had really great evidence of that. In the Proud Boys trial, um, you know, it's really in the in the text messages and the communications, which I heard some ridiculous number that they had something like 50,000 messages in evidence between all the guys, all the Proud Boys that were involved in the trial. And then, of course, one of those messages is Enrique Tarrio at the end of the day saying, we did this, literally taking responsibility for the sacking of the Capitol. So, you know, I don't know that there is really clear evidence of Trump's conspiracy to prevent or hinder by force, but we'll have to see. 
Yeah. And here's something else to consider, too, because when we got the sentencing recommendations for the Oath Keepers uh, for seditious conspiracy, one of the things they said is there's there's a few guys here in the Oath Keepers who were not guilty of any of the conspiracies. Uh, However, the DOJ puts this in writing in their sentencing recommendations that you, even if you're found not guilty of the conspiracy, you are you can still be a member of the conspiracy and are therefore liable for the actions of your co-conspirators. That's how conspiracy works. So he might not be a member. So like, let's say uh, Rudy and uh, Sidney Powell and Roger Stone and Mike Flynn were all very uh, into helping plan the physical attack on the Capitol. And Donald Trump is somehow part of that conspiracy, he doesn't have to be found guilty of seditious conspiracy to be liable for the actions of his co-conspirators. So there's also that to keep in mind. That's also true for conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, And I think that that's important to note if, you know, if let's say Eastman is found guilty of the conspiracy, but Donald Trump is not, he would still be liable for Eastman's actions as part of, as a member of the conspiracy. Uh, so I think it's a very important point that you don't have to be guilty of conspiracy to be considered a member of the conspiracy and liable for the co-conspirators' actions. Yeah, and I, I think that goes to a piece that's uh, a little bit confusing for people who haven't worked inside the criminal justice system, and that is the sentencing process, it's not just a math formula of you got convicted of this crime and therefore you do this amount of time. Once the court knows what you've been convicted of, you then have the probation department does a pre-sentencing report, which goes to like your, um, all the aggravating and mitigating circumstances of you and your life and what you did uh, relative to the crime. And all of that information comes before the court. And so somehow they have to come up with, they have the sentencing guidelines, which based on what you did, uh, there's a guideline score, and that's a suggestion of what your sentence should be. But all that is basically converting, you go from the conviction, and then you look at what the person actually, what did they do? What conduct did they involve themselves in? How were they acting maybe in concert with their co-defendants, now co Co uh, convicts, I guess. And what was the what was the scope of the conspiracy that has? Uh, the, and then also whether you were a supervisor or a leader or a manager of the conspiracy. That's there's right. A, there's levels up for that. And then something I was looking for in the Oath Keepers sentencing recommendations is there a note for terror enhancement? And there was in this case, which adds six levels to to the to the sentencing level, which is, you know, just a, a way to find a number and then look on a chart right. to see the range of the years that you would serve. So uh, all, and that a, was in there. Right. All those factors go go into the alchemy that is the math of the the sentencing guidelines score, essentially. And it's no longer even binding on the judge. It's just a suggestion as to what the appropriate sentence might be. So Yes, you even though you're only being sentenced for the crimes that you were that you were convicted of, the court gets to look at all of your conduct um 
all the conduct that you engaged in that's relevant to the crimes you were convicted of. And, and sometimes that may be, you know, that's taking into consideration things that you do that you did not get convicted of. I know that seems... Yeah, and there's good stuff too. Like if you yeah. took responsibility and that's you right. felt remorse and you helped maybe the government or, uh, you know, there's things that can lower that that's level right. to the guide, lower the range for the sentencing guidelines. Something else really interesting in that... Uh, Oath Keepers. Two things, two other things I was looking for is whether they would have to take a path through treason because there are no sentencing guidelines for seditious conspiracy, uh, which they did. Um, you know, and what you when you read those um, elements of seditious conspiracy, one was to levy war against the United States. That's right. So if you commit seditious conspiracy and it says see treason and then you go to treason and it says did they levy war against the United States? If yes, stay here on treason. If no, go to obstruction of justice. <laughs> and everything got, got funneled. All of these uh, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstructing an official proceeding, all of these 20-year max sentences, seditious conspiracy, all got funneled to the obstruction of justice table. And, and that's where you start. And I thought that was fascinating. And then finally, the other thing I wanted to know uh, which actually surprised me was whether, you know, if you committed seditious conspiracy and obstructing an official proceeding and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding or some other felony, both 20 year max sentences, would the DOJ recommend that those sentences be served concurrently or consecutively? And the DOJ in the sentencing recommendation said consecutively up to a certain point, right up to the, the max of the biggest crime that you committed and then you can add the levels and that's how they came up with 25 years uh for uh, Stuart Rhodes because all of those are 20 year sentences and so how did it get to 25 well because they wanted to serve these multiple felonies consecutively and then you add the elements of terror and right. scope and managerial stuff. And that's how you ended up with leadership a 39 yeah. level leadership role. Yeah. And that's what gives you the sentencing range. I believe it was 22 to 28 years. And they said 25. Yeah. It's it's confusing as hell. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's a very complicated process that most people kind of don't, you know, look behind the curtain on. Even just that decision to pursue consecutive sentences, you know, to some degree is pretty rare. I can tell you in most cases, DOJ either... Um, doesn't recommend that or, or doesn't take a position on that at all. They just completely leave it up to the court. There's there are some cases like nine or some charges like 924C, which is like use of a firearm during the commission of a federal felony. There are different levels of 924C that actually uh, mandate uh, uh, consecutive sentences versus um, versus concurrent sentences. But those special statutes aside, typically DOJ doesn't even take a position. So it's interesting yeah, to me. And this that they isn't one. This isn't one that requires a consecutive uh, right. sentence, none right. of these things, nor does adding a terror enhancement make it require consecutive. They said, look, the, the basically there's a, a something you have to take into account, which is being sentenced like your peers who have been convicted of this. And they're saying, you know, we tend to not go for the obstructing an official proceeding level because we have 300 people who did that. Right. These guys are special. Right. These guys should be convicted the way other people convicted of seditious conspiracy have been convicted because that's a, an element of fairness that they bring that's into right. the sentencing guidelines. So that's where it stands. We'll see what Judge Amit Mehta does with the Oath Keepers sentencing recommendations. Of course, the Oath Keepers came back, Stuart Rhodes, and said, I want to do time served, uh, <laughs> which is... A, <laughs> Doesn't everyone? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not, good try, not but not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen here. 
So we'll see. And then I think we'll see very similar, if not identical, sentencing recommendations for the Proud Boys, Seditious Conspiracy Convictions. I I think there will be a lot of pressure on DOJ to approach that in a very consistent manner, which I'm sure they will. Yeah, I think so, too. But this is the equivalent of throwing the book at them, honestly, Mm -hmm. the way that this is written. Uh, Everything was up and high and consecutive and uh, scope and and, um, adding the terror enhancement. So we'll see how that goes. But all right. Uh, I, I expect that that will probably take a month or two at least um, at, for the Proud Boys, and we'll see where we stand. We have we don't have a sentencing date yet for, for all the Oath Keepers, but we'll keep you posted. All right. We have uh, one little segment left here. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're also going to take some listener questions. If you have any questions for us, by the way, you can send them to us at hello at com. Just put Jack in the subject title, and uh, we will answer your questions. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right. Welcome back, everyone. All right. Now we're going to jump into another story, AG, which I'm going to call this one of the bigger stories this week. And it seems to have been the uh, car crash that was the CNN town hall with Donald Trump. And so we have a couple of quotes that I wanted just to kind of throw out there for people's consideration 
about things that Trump said that I think actually could have an impact on his um, how some of these uh, investigations on the documents case and the January 6th case play out. But before we get to that, uh, there's been a, so much of a uh, kind of a tempest in a teapot over whether or not CNN should have even put Trump on TV in this sort of setting. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were on uh, how it went. Well, <clears throat> my thoughts are all over Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Which for the non-Twitter uh, people like me, we miss those things. Or is it just me? Maybe it's just me. Uh -huh. It's, it's just you. All it's right. just you. Everybody, I've been trying to get Andy to sign up, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't do that to my worst enemy. So um, I won't do it to my friend. Well, first of all, um, the the event had three million viewers. Yeah. And of course, a lot of the media is positioning that as, whoa, they usually only have like 500,000 in that time slot. Um, but they got 3 million. But I would like to position it a little bit differently because that shouldn't be compared to the normal time slot on CNN. It should be compared to other major political events. And so I went back to remind myself how many people watched the January 6th Cassidy Hutchinson testimony. Okay. And that was that was 13 million. Wow. So three million, womp womp. I don't consider that a, a, a win. I think it's um, Cassidy Hutchinson for president. Then <laughs> I mean, she has a better got, chance. Right? Maybe she's got to run at the uh, Republican nomination. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Hey. Hey. You know, um, don't make it harder for Democrats. Uh, but uh, <laughs> any anyhow, uh, I I think that it was a um, not worth the backlash that they got for for giving a platform to uh, Donald Trump. Of course, their argument is he's he's the leading candidate in yeah. all the polling for the Republican. And it's like, but because you're making him that. I know Anderson Cooper came out and said, look, half of the country is behind him. That is also incorrect. Jim Jordan tries to pull that number out of his butt, too. And that is not true. It's like more like 19, 17 percent, 19 percent. So I feel like it's, you know, hey, Trump is a cash cow. I get it. But... Trying yeah. to promote him to make him the candidate isn't the job of a news organization. But that, you know, just my two cents. Yeah. Uh, and and regardless, there were some there was a lot said on that stage that is probably making Trump's attorneys, the smart ones, very uh, sad today. Yeah, I think I, I think so. I I. I tend to agree. I, I agree with their decision that it was a newsworthy thing to do. However, you have to acknowledge that it's also impossible to do without giving him the opportunity to lie uh, pretty much constantly for an hour. And, you know, so I think Caitlin Collins did as good a job as anyone could do. I think it's essentially if you're going to give him a platform, you need to try to fact check him in any way that you can. And it's essentially impossible for any host who's in the middle of asking questions and navigating the event and trying to listen to what he says to also have the responsibility to fact check the guy as he literally goes from lie to lie to lie. Uh, so it's, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't disagree yeah, with their know, decision maybe. to do it. But I think, I also think the way they sculpted, or I think they said curated the audience to be exclusively, yeah. essentially Trump supporters was a, was a huge mistake. But um, anyway, that's my, that's my media uh, analysis of the week. <laughs>
Well, apparently, um, Chris Licht told him to have fun out there. And uh, and I think that they were saying that the Trump campaign wanted Caitlin Collins. I think it was important for him to steamroll a woman Probably. in front of his base. Probably. Uh, and they didn't want Jake Tapper to do it because he doesn't platform election deniers. So uh, there was, you know, and there's probably so much, so many decisions that went on behind the scenes. I just don't think it should have. I don't, you don't make the news, you report it is, is kind of where I'm, where I'm at. But yeah. um, let's talk a little bit about how some of the things that he said could impact the Jack Smith investigation. Yeah, sure. So as you would expect, uh, if given a platform, it's really more likely than not that he's going to ultimately say things that are um, <laughs> self-destructive. And, and this, this episode did not disappoint. So just a couple of these. I think um, early on, Caitlin started to talk to him about, um, you know, try to get him to admit that the election was not uh, overturned, you know, wasn't fraudulent, that he lost. And of course, he, he wouldn't do any of that. And eventually they get into discussing Mike Pence. Caitlin Collins points out that um, Pence has now blamed Trump for endangering his life, which I think is a pretty uh, clear and easy to prove assertion. Trump, of course, interjected with a lie, uh, saying, I don't think he was in any danger. <sighs> Trump then stated, I mean, I don't know what he was watching on uh, on January 6th, but... He was watching it. We know he was watching yeah. it in that dining room for 187 minutes or whatever. Yeah. So then Trump goes on to say, Pence, quote, did something wrong. He should have put the votes back to the state legislatures. I think we would have had a different outcome. I really do. So that one's really fascinating to me because he's basically admitting the purpose of obstructing the official proceeding, right? <laughs> we, we know that the, you know, the strategies were down to, let's see if we can get Pence to reject the electors outright, um, or in the alternative, let's see if we can get Pence to delay the certification, give us another week or two to try to figure out how we could overturn this election. And we know that because we know there was a meeting on January 4th in the Oval Office uh, between Trump, Pence, uh, John Eastman, probably others, which, well, Eastman basically says that Pence does not, you know, he pitches Pence on either delaying or rejecting the certification of the electors, and then admits that both would likely be illegal, right? So from, from Pence's book, now we have, uh, this is Pence, uh, a quote from Pence from his book. At that, I turned to the president, who was distracted at the time, big surprise. <laughs> okay, that was me. I added that part and said, Mr. President, did you hear that? He turned his attention to me and I said, even your lawyer doesn't think I have the authority to return the electoral votes. The president nodded. As Eastman tried to get out some explanation, the president replied, quote, I like the other things better, presumably referring to his previous opinion that I could simply choose to reject the electoral votes altogether. So this is really interesting because with Trump's statement in the town hall that Pence did something wrong, he should have sent the votes back to the state legislatures, he's acknowledging that, yeah, this was the plan he was behind. We also know from other evidence that he knew that the plan was illegal from what Pence said, probably consistent with what Pence testified to in front of the grand jury. Um, so it really, it kind of erases any doubt as to what Trump wanted from Pence on January 6th, because apparently he still wants the, thing, the same thing from Pence today. Yeah. Yeah. And then when Collins asked, why did you wait three hours to tell them to leave? Uh, to leave the Capitol. They listen to you like no one else. You know that. 
He said, they do. I agree with that. Um, And then he tried to shift the blame to Nancy Pelosi and Mayor Bowser, which has been debunked a a zillion times Uh, under oath. We know Kosh Patel and Chris Miller uh, were saying or Jason Miller were saying that, you know, no, he never once tried to (laughs) get the National Guard out. Um, And then he uh, uh, Collins asked about the the perfect call to Brad Raffensperger and um, Trump said it was a perfect call. He would make it all over again. Uh, and that could be problematic for a few reasons because it could show that he's unrepentant and that it was intentional. And he also said he owes me the votes. He right. owed me 11,780 right. votes. Wow. Yeah. That also goes right to intent. And, and to be saying these things when we know that Fannie Willis is right now considering whether or not to indict him. So I don't know, making a completely unrepentant statement about the phone call, this probably a bad time to do that right now, also kind of projects that um, it's intentional. Like what you were, what you were saying on that phone call was you absolutely intended to essentially extort additional votes, pressure additional votes out of these state officials. Really bad timing to be making that point explicitly clear. But my favorite, I think, was the document case, right? The stuff that he says about Mar-a-Lago. So I was just going to say that that document stuff was, wow. (laughs) Because Collins says uh, they were found at Mar-a-Lago. Why did you take those documents with you when you left the White House? And Trump said, I had every right under the Presidential Records Act. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Biden, on the other hand, has 1,850 boxes in Chinatown, et cetera, where they don't even speak English in that Chinatown we're talking about, you know, all that conspiracy nonsense. But tell me, when he says, I was there and I took what I took. Again, I mean, this is unbelievable because he is painting himself into a corner where he can't say, oh my gosh, you know what? It was an administrative error. My staff took that stuff. I didn't know what was there. Like that would be the smart thing to do if you're ultimately indicted for uh, unlawfully taking national defense information or classified information uh, from the White House, which of course he had no right to do under the Presidential Records Act, despite the way he refers to the Presidential Records Act. And none of that stuff had been declassified. He's he's eliminating possible defenses for himself by saying, hey, it was an intentional act. I took what I took and I had every right to it and I still have every right to it. It's my stuff. Uh, so he may really end up riding that assertion uh, right into a conviction. Yeah. And in that letter to Congress written by Trump lawyers asking the Congress to tell the DOJ to stand down, the whole defense was that they got swept up. They got right. put into boxes. Right. We didn't know they were there. Kind of like what happened with finding classified documents at Biden's house or at Pence's house, right? They were actually swept up and put into boxes and nobody knew they were there. Now he's saying he took them. Uh, and he complete his lawyers who wrote that letter to Congress to try to get DOJ to stand down because it was all an accident and he was doing his best to give everything back. And it was just the aides who packed up all the boxes and Right. And, uh, you know, and DOJ has unfairly and politically criminalized some conduct that wasn't criminal at all. Well, I that's mean, their defense. <laughs> that's their only defense. And he just blew it again. They're going to just shove this right, you know, back in his face. So finally, yeah. uh, wrapping this thing up, Collins uh, says to him, when it comes to your documents, 
funny that she refers to them as his documents. Did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? And Trump says, not really. I would, <laughs> not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified after, and Collins interrupts him and says, what do you mean not really? And he says, not, not that I can think of. Let me just tell you, I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. I have the right. And then he just blathers on about Nara. I mean, again, he just paints himself into this corner where he's making everything that happened seem like the result of his intentional decision-making, that he knew what the stuff was, that he wanted to keep it, and he intentionally made the decision to keep it. He's boxing himself out of some of what, what would have been his most effective defenses. Yeah. And not really, I would have the right to, by the way, means he definitely did. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let's just be clear. Yeah. Um, There are some rules of Trump speak that are always maintained. Like anytime he says, you know, and they said to me, yes, sir, you can do X. You can guarantee that no one ever said that to him. Anything he begins with yes, sir, is completely made up. Yeah, or tears in their eyes, yeah. right? Like or, many, many phone calls from the FBI, from people in the FBI right, who right. said I was right to fire Comey or whatever. Or no, that, no. People Zero. say, whatever begins with people say, you can guarantee only Trump is saying that. Or I read it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's saying. Everyone's, Everyone's saying, saying it tremendously. Nobody's saying it except you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see if any of this pops up from the town hall in, in uh, any of the speaking indictments that I expect to come out from the special counsel's office. So, That brings us to our questions portion of the show. What do we have today, Andy? All right, two quick ones. The first one comes from Jackie, and she says, I'm wondering how many Washington grand juries are hearing evidence for Jack Smith's investigation. Jackie, I know the answer to this only because I was listening to a really interesting interview of Alan Foyer uh, from the New York Times about two days ago. And Terry Gross asked Alan on Fresh Air the same question, and he said, Two. Right now, they two. they know there are two grand juries that are seated that are hearing evidence. They're not 100% sure, like, is one for the document case and is one for the Gen 6 case. They don't, they don't know exactly. And it's always possible that there's another one that they're not aware of, but there are at least two right now. Yeah, the way I would run it is to have them both hearing anything that came out, wire fraud, obstruction, blah, blah, blah. Because if you have two grand juries, you've got one meeting on Monday, Wednesday, you have one meeting on Tuesday, Tuesday, Thursday, then you basically have a grand jury all week that you can present any evidence in any case to on any specific day that you need to. And the reason I say that is because as soon as some of those executive privilege overrulings came out, Within hours, they would have somebody testifying in the grand jury. And you wouldn't want to have to wait till the next day for that specific grand jury. So my that's just pure speculation. I think that these grand juries are trained up on all the cases so they can hear them on any day. Yeah. And, you know, if one of them times out, they're likely on different schedules. And if one times out, you still are chugging forward with the other one that you have. And that enables you to bring in a replacement for the one that timed out, bring them up to speed. So you, you could constantly kind of alternate one to the other and always have a grand jury that's capable of of ruling or voting on the entire issue. So that's that was our first one. The second question is from Steve, and he says, if charging Donald Trump for taking classified documents is going to be a lengthy trial due to all the claims of declassification and how to prove the documents are still classified, doesn't it make more sense to just charge him for violating 18 U.S.C. 
uh, 2071B and get that trial moving so the clock doesn't run. That's the, um, I think that's the mishandling statute. Mm-hmm. Got a bunch of questions along this line uh, this week. And it's- pe- It's the concealment, destruction concealment statute. There you go. Yeah. So um, people are clearly concerned about the timing issue, which I share your concern about that. The, the clock is still ticking. But I don't think that the length of the trial really is a factor there. What you want is to toll the clock by returning an indictment before you're too deep in the election uh, season, before you're in that 60-slash-90-day period before the election. And I, and we still have a fair amount of runway to get that done. Uh, I don't think that the fact that you're working with classified documents in the trial necessarily makes it a much lengthier process. There are pretty good procedures in place through the Classified Information Protection Act, the SEPA rules, that um, allow courts to work with classified evidence uh, in a way that protects the classified information, but it is um, enables you to get that stuff in and in front of the jury in the form of things like redactions and substitutions. And, you know, you can always get stipulations from both sides that, for instance, that both sides would stipulate that a particular document is in fact classified. So then you don't, you know, you have, that's one less factual issue for the jury to worry about. So um, I don't see that as a big problem, but of course you never know uh, until you get there. So we'll stay tuned. Yeah. And there's also things that I've heard them referred to as Goldilocks documents where they aren't so classified that they can be used as evidence in, in one of these trials, but they're classified enough to yeah. meet the statutory requirements. Mm-hmm. And then that's the easiest know, way to do it, to actually declassify yeah. that stuff or some version of it so you can use it at trial. And, um, you know, it depends on whose document it is. If it's an FBI document, then FBI and DOJ have a lot more leverage in terms of deciding what to do with it to say, you know, this thing may not be sensitive anymore. If it's a super duper classified NSA thing that has a, a lot of sources and methods kind of um, that could be in jeopardy if it's declassified, that's much harder to work with. So one of the things that investigators and prosecutors do in the lead up to these trials is they identify the evidence that they're going to use by making decisions like that, like what's easier, what's going to be easier to declassify or get agreement from these other agencies to move forward with this stuff. So, yeah. And if they don't have a lot of espionage or any espionage evidence enough to charge espionage, but, you know, want to, uh, uh, actually even espionage doesn't require the, cl- the documents to be classified. So, you know, yeah. like this uh, questioner uh, posed, like that we could do 2071 and, 1519, which is the granddaddy obstructing, yeah. uh, and uh, 793 without any classified documents yeah. at all. So and espionage there's that needs, option too. It has to be national defense information. It's much easier to classify, or not classify, to uh, kind of qualify something as national defense information than, than classified. Like you said, it doesn't actually have to be classified to, to count as national defense information. So that's a, that's a little bit easier. And finally, I would say they know what they have. Right. They fought so hard to actually get to look at and analyze this stuff and conduct a damage assessment. They know what they have to work with. And if they didn't, if there wasn't any, if everything in there was so wildly sensitive that you couldn't possibly risk going to trial with it, we wouldn't be here talking about this investigation right now. The thing would have been over a long time ago. So I'm confident <laughs> that they'll, this won't be a problem. Yeah, very true. All right. Thank you so much for those questions. Again, if you have a question, you can send it to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com and put Jack in the subject line. Andy, it's been a really interesting week. We're going to see what happens next week. I think we're in the calm before the storm, but 
There could be more subpoenas that go out with regard to the wire fraud and, and defrauding donors and, and that investigation. There, there could be things that we don't yet know about. There could be things happening right now that, uh, you know, like in the George Santos situation yeah. that, that are going on that we just have absolutely no idea. But it seems quiet this week. And uh, that always makes me think uh, we're, we're there's because there's always that little bit of silence right before the hammer drops. That's All right. right. That's right. <laughs> thank you so much. And thanks to our patrons who support the show. You make the show possible. Uh, we will see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.